We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, Emmaus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastoral candidates here at the church, and uh, it's just a a delight and a pleasure to be with you this morning, and it's a delight and a pleasure to be with you if you are a guest with us today. Uh, We'd love to meet you. We'd we'd love to talk talk to you and connect with you today, so come and find me uh, after the service is over. I'll be here in the front, and uh, I'd love uh, for you to introduce yourself and for me to be able to get to know you. Uh, If you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. Uh, We'll be in Acts chapter 9 this morning as we continue our series. Uh, If you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, we saw back in chapter 8 that the gospel was spreading beyond Jerusalem. Persecution had forced the church out of the city, and God's people, with the exception of the 12 apostles, God's people begin to scatter abroad. And and verse 4 of chapter 8 tells us that as the church went out, as it scattered, they continued to preach the word. And one of those who went about preaching was Philip. You'll remember Philip from Acts chapter 6. He was a deacon of the church. And two Sundays ago, Pastor Josh preached to us from chapter 8 about how Philip brought the gospel to the people of Samaria. And then he left Samaria and he went into what was virtually a desert wasteland to bring the gospel to a eunuch from Ethiopia. Now this falls in line with what Jesus said would happen back at the beginning of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 8, he tells his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was God's plan. But seen from a strictly human perspective, this plan had some, shall we say, surprising twists in it. In many ways, it confounded worldly assumptions that were so prevalent at this time. I mean, think about it. The fact that Samaritans were believing, were were, were placing their faith in a Jewish Messiah, that was no small thing. That was no minor thing because people from Jerusalem and people from Samaria, they hated each other. It had been this way for a long time. And yet here comes this guy, here comes Philip from Jerusalem bringing good news about Jesus. And under the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit, Samaria is taken by storm. And then the same thing happens with the Ethiopian eunuch. This eunuch was a foreigner from a strange and distant land. He looked different. He dressed different. He could not have been more different than the culture there in Jerusalem. And as if that weren't enough, his status as a eunuch would have meant that Luke's audience would have had nothing but contempt for this man. They would have mocked him. They would have derided him for the way his body had been mutilated. And yet, that's not what Philip does. No, not at all. Instead, he takes the time to patiently and gently show this eunuch how the prophecy that was made by Isaiah points to the person and work 
of Jesus. And then the eunuch believes this good news and he is baptized. And what does he do? He takes the gospel back to his homeland. He takes the gospel back to Ethiopia, to the ends of the earth, in other words. Friends, what's happening in this section of the book of Acts is that Luke is showing us that the work of the gospel so often subverts our expectations. It shocks us. It surprises us. It startles us. It takes our breath away because it transforms some of the most untransformable people. Wherever the gospel goes, wherever the gospel is working, there are surprising converts. We saw this with the Samaritans. We saw it with the Ethiopian eunuch. And we'll see it again once more today in the case of Saul of Tarsus. What Saul experienced on the road to Damascus illustrates a life-changing truth. It's a truth that has the power to completely alter our, expect, our, our, our perspective on everything. And here it is. Here's what's at the heart of the story we're going to look at today. That Jesus Christ is the sovereign author of transformation. Jesus Christ, when his glory and his goodness and his greatness are revealed, he is the sovereign author of transformation. This means that Jesus can transform anyone, anywhere, at any time. And so often he does this in the people that we least expect. Think about Saul. Think about who he was. He was the church's sworn enemy. He was a Hebrew zealot, which means that he was firmly committed to the demise of the Christian faith. His mission in life was to purge Israel from all outside influence, all influence that in Paul's estimation or in Saul's estimation corrupted the people of Israel. That's what motivated Saul. That's what drove him to do the radical things he did. He, he's what we would call in our day a religious extremist. We would call him a terrorist. We saw the evidence of this back at the beginning, beginning of chapter 8 where Saul was presiding over the martyrdom of Stephen. And it says that he went on from Stephen's martyrdom to brutalize the church. So we see two things happening here at the same time. The first thing we see is that the gospel is spreading. It's spreading powerfully to different peoples and places. But we see that at the same time, parallel with the spread of the gospel, persecution is intensifying. It is ratcheting up. And Saul was on the front lines of this. And by the time we get here to chapter 9, we see Saul in what could only be classified as a homicidal rampage. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So now that the Christians have all been driven out of Jerusalem by persecution, Saul is going to go out from there and he is going to hunt them down. This is a search and destroy mission. And it was authorized by the religious rulers in Jerusalem. 
which Saul, he is all too pleased to carry this out. Verse 1 says that he was breathing murder and threats against the church. With these words, the, the, the picture that Luke is painting for us is of Saul as a fire-breathing dragon. Just as a dragon's breath will smolder with fire, so Saul's breath was smoldering with rage and with seething hatred. And this hatred was beginning to overtake him. It was beginning to dehumanize him, which makes what happens next all the more amazing. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Friends, what we're seeing here is the starting point at which Saul is being transformed by a glorious Lord. The fire-breathing dragon is being subdued. The light is flashing from heaven. A voice thunders, and suddenly Saul of Tarsus, once so sure of himself, once so convinced of his purpose in life, is now face down in the dirt. It's one of history's greatest reversal stories, a starting point of a profound transformation. And what was causing this? What was, what was bringing this great reversal about? Well, there's no shortage of speculation about this. Many of Saul's modern interpreters have offered so-called modern explanations of what happened. Some will tell you that Saul experienced a powerful hallucination. Some will say that this was the psychological toll of his violent ways. In other words, Saul's losing his mind. But if we take what we're reading at face value, we see that Saul is being transformed by a person. He is being transformed by the person who is revealed in the light and in the voice. This was a glory that overtook him. It was a radiance that overwhelmed him. Whoever this person was, he was Saul's new Lord. He was Saul's new master. Verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? What is your name? This Saul had to know. And he was in, the, in for the shock of a lifetime. Because look at how the voice answers in verse 5. It says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. I am the one whom you have been persecuting this whole time. With these words, Jesus is telling Saul that the sufferings of his people here on earth are his sufferings. Like to injure the body of Jesus is to injure him. To persecute the church is to persecute her Lord. 
And so suddenly, for Saul, worlds are colliding. His mind must have been reeling because for him, these three words that were spoken by the voice, I am Jesus, were revealing that Jesus is I am. The one that Saul has been persecuting is in fact the Messiah and Lord of Israel. It's the same one that that Saul has been claiming to worship and serve his entire life. One scholar says that in this moment, Saul's dreams were simultaneously fulfilled and shattered. What a confounding revelation this was. It must have shaken Saul to the core of his being. It must have hit him hard. And I wonder how it hits you today. I wonder what you think. Because, you know, it can be tempting for us when we read a story like this, it can be tempting for us to want to dwell on the details of Saul's experience. To want to focus on Saul's perceptions of what is happening, to to focus on how this impacted him. And no doubt we're going to do some of that. But let's not miss the main thing here. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. Saul and his experience are not at the center of the story. Saul is not its main character. No, the main character here on the road to Damascus is Jesus Christ. This is all about how the glory of Jesus can disrupt our lives and put us flat on our face. This happens again and again in the scriptures. Like when Peter and John witnessed the glory of Christ in his transfiguration, Matthew 17, 2 says that the face of Jesus shone like the sun. It says that his clothes became white as light. Or think about in the book of Revelation. John is on the island of Patmos, and he says that the glory of Christ is revealed to him in a vision. And when when John sees this vision, when he lays his eyes on the glory and majesty of the risen Christ, he says, I fell down at his feet as though I was dead. Like the majesty and the, the, the glory of the risen and reigning Christ is that overwhelming. It's that disruptive. It's that alarming. And just as Jesus revealed himself on that Damascus road, as he revealed himself on the mount of his transfiguration, as he revealed himself on the island of Patmos, he wants to reveal himself to Emmaus Church today. He wants to reveal his glory here and now. And Saul would would tell us later in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that Jesus revealing His glory to us is how we are transformed. As we behold the radiance of his glory, we are being transformed from one degree of that glory to the next. When Jesus shows up and shows off, hearts are changed. Lives are are turned around. Everything we thought we knew is reversed, is turned on its head. Appetites for the things of this world are forever ruined. Because we have tasted and seen that the Lord alone is good. So look not at Saul's experience today primarily. Look not primarily at Saul of Tarsus. No, look primarily at the one whom Saul calls Lord. His glory 
is revealed in the inscrutable greatness of his sovereignty. The light comes from heaven. The voice thunders from above. The blindness that comes over Saul in verse 8, this means that this Jesus has the power to give sight to our eyes and just as well he has the power to take it away. These things show how great his sovereignty is. They show that he is majestic. He is omnipotent. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. All creation does his bidding. There is no one above him. There is no one beside him. Saul would come to know him as the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him, to Jesus alone, belong honor and eternal dominion. There is no one like Jesus, friends. There never has been and never will be. We see that in his greatness. We also see his glory and his goodness toward sinners. When Jesus reveals himself, Saul of Tarsus is completely undone. One moment his sights are set on the city of Damascus. The next moment he is blind and laying in the dirt. Just a shell of a man. He went from doing the bidding of the religious rulers in Jerusalem to being completely floored by the ruler of all things. But Matthew 12, 20 says of this ruler that he will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoldering wick. I mean, think about that. Here we have Saul, the church's most violent persecutor. He hated Jesus. He hates the church of Jesus. And for this, he deserves to be destroyed in the presence of the Lord. Deuteronomy 7.10 tells us this. It says that the Lord repays to their face those who hate him. He repays them by destroying them. You guys, Jesus has every lawful reason to strike down Saul of Tarsus. If he wanted to, he would, it would be perfectly within his rights to wipe Saul off the face of the earth, and yet that's, that's not what happens. No, Jesus is merciful to Saul. Our Lord is kind to orchestrate events in Saul's life so that Saul will soon be able to preach a gospel of free grace with full conviction. So that he'll be able to spend the rest of his life saying things like he says in Ephesians chapter 2. That we were once children of wrath. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses in which we once walked. But God was so rich in mercy that because of the great love with which he loved us, he saved us. Not because of anything that we have done. Not because of what we bring to the table. Not because of anything that we could ever boast in. But no, he saves us by grace through faith. Free and sovereign grace. And it's all because of Jesus. That was Saul's resounding testimony, friends. And it's ours as well. We, like him, are sinners saved by grace. And we know this for the simple fact that we have encountered a glorious Lord. We have been transformed by a glorious Lord who is both sovereign 
and good. Now look with me at the effects of this transformation. The first effect is that Saul is transformed to a greater perspective. He'll never see things the way he once did. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of, Saul, of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. So as a result of his encounter with the risen and reigning Jesus, Saul is rendered completely blind. He can't see a thing. And he's refusing meals. Like, this is no time for food. Something bigger is at work here. Saul, you see, is spending three days in darkness and deprivation. For him, this is a kind of death where his old life is passing away. In the course of just three days, Saul, as the world had known him, is buried. And a new Saul comes to life with new perspective. A perspective that is defined by death and resurrection. And this will begin in Damascus. So just as Jesus went into the tomb and spent three days in darkness, so Saul in Damascus will spend three days in total darkness. And just as Jesus emerged from the tomb after three days, so Saul in Damascus will be raised after three days of darkness. And this experience in Damascus illustrates that Saul's perspective is now determined, it is now defined by his relationship with the once crucified, now risen Messiah. And this perspective is what will carry him for the rest of his days. Just listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 8 he says, I count everything as loss. So everything that I've achieved, everything that I have done to keep the law with great rigor and precision, I count it all as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, all I want is to be found in him. 
Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now listen to this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Before Saul met Jesus, everything in his life was defined by how rigorously, by how precisely he was keeping the law. Saul was a Pharisee. So in his mind, this is what made him righteous before God. It it made him right with the God of Israel. And yet at the same time, this distorted his perspective on everything. It reminds me of what the, the comedian George Carlin once said. He once observed that when you're on the road and you're driving in your car, everyone who's going faster than you is a maniac and everyone who's going slower than you is an idiot. That's what living according to the law does. It makes you arrogant. It makes you arrogant so as to think that you are the standard. Saul viewed himself that way. He measured everyone else by himself. As the standard, so much so that if anyone failed to meet that standard with the requisite precision and rigor that Saul did, Saul had no issue being violent towards such a person. Like in his mind, people who failed to keep the law as he did were so disgusting and vile and unclean that, well, for them to die for their lack of righteousness, I mean, didn't they kind of have it coming to them? But Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus and he disrupted everything that Saul thought. Everything that Saul had presumed. He disrupted it all. He came and he completely turned Saul's perspective upside down. He obliterated every perception that Saul had so that Saul realized that righteousness was no longer something that he could achieve by his own efforts at law keeping. And it's the same for us, friends. There is no way for our self-righteousness to measure up. Like when we see Jesus for who he really is, we realize this. When we see his glory and his goodness, when we see that he is perfection itself, when we see that he is holiness itself, we realize that righteousness is something that can only be received. It can only be received by grace through faith. It can only be received when we are crucified with Christ. When that happens, it's no longer we who live, but it is Christ who begins to live in us so that the life we now live in this world, we live by faith in him who loved us and gave himself for us. That's what it means to be righteous in the eyes of God. It means that we are crucified and raised with Jesus, his son. And that's what Saul began to see after his encounter with the glorious Christ. What a radical change in perspective. But Saul is not the only one who experienced a change like this. Ananias also receives a new perspective. At the same time that all this is going on with Saul, Jesus appears to Ananias in a vision. He tells him to go to a street called Straight, go to the house of a man named Judas, and there you'll find a guy named Tarsus, or a guy from Tarsus named Saul. And then, of course, in verse 13, Ananias is reluctant, right? We understand why that is. 
It's a very human response. But once again, the kindness of Jesus shows up here and it prevails. Because Jesus doesn't come down on Ananias for being out of line. Instead, he gently corrects him. He says, no, Ananias, listen, I've got a plan here. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Trust my plan. Go find Saul of Tarsus. He's waiting for you. And with this, Jesus is authorizing Ananias to be an instrument of resurrection life. Just as, been, just as Luke has been reminding us throughout this entire section of the book of Acts, Ananias will learn that the work of the gospel so often subverts our expectations. In the mind of Ananias, the Saul that he thought he knew was beyond redemption. He was beyond help. But the glory of Jesus came in and it broke through and it disrupted all of that so that Ananias can be sent to Saul as an instrument of resurrection life. In this way, Ananias shows us an important truth about our involvement in the mission of God. He shows us that you don't need to see the end result of God's call on your life in order to take the first step of obedience toward that call. All you need is to see Jesus Christ. What you need most is to be in touch with his voice and to know that the radiance of his glory is more than enough to overcome our reluctance to obey. That's how we learn to live as instruments of resurrection life. And all this clicks for Saul immediately. Look back at the text with me. We'll look, we'll look starting in verse 20. It says, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, thank God for Barnabas, he took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So just as Ananias is sent as an instrument of resurrection life, so Saul will now be sent. He has been transformed for a gospel mission. Formerly Saul's mission was to destroy the church, but now his mission is to multiply the church. 
And he begins there immediately at the synagogue in Damascus. Once it becomes clear to the church that Saul has been genuinely transformed, once it becomes apparent that he truly is a disciple of the Lord, the church is supernaturally energized. Luke concludes the story by talking about the experience of the momentum of God's people. He describes it in verse 31 where he says they're walking in the fear of the Lord. They're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They're being built up. They're multiplying. They have peace. And it's because of what they have seen Jesus do. It's because they've seen the disruptive power of his glory. That in Christ, the man who once made martyrs now makes disciples. But at the same time, we also see that things don't get any easier for the church. The opposition Continues. We see this as the case with the church in general. We also see that it's the case with Saul in particular. Saul was once the opposer, and now he finds himself the opposed. So much so that the church sends him back to Tarsus. They're like, Saul, listen, if you stick around here, you're not going to make it. Like, they're going to get you at some point. Why don't you go back to Tarsus, go back home, lay low, wait for all this to blow over. That's how... That's how intense the persecution against Saul had become. Verse 16, remember, Jesus tells Ananias, Saul must suffer for the name. He must suffer. In fact, that's that's the entire point here. It's that Saul's entry into the mission of God shows us that one of the ways that we enter into the death and resurrection of Jesus is by doing hard things. We do hard things to make Jesus known. We go into difficult places in his name, even when we know that opposition awaits us there. We've seen this over and over in the book of Acts. We see it here with Saul that so often opposition awaits those who are sent by the Lord Jesus. But Saul went, and so must we. We must go because we believe that Jesus, making him known to others and knowing him is worth any cost. When we truly know him and the power of his resurrection, we will gladly be crucified with him. We will enter into his sufferings without flinching so that we can share in the glory of his resurrection without end. And only those who have encountered Jesus Understand this. Only those who have seen the glory of Christ will know why this is. Because, listen, the world will always consider it foolishness. They think we're out of our minds. They think we've lost it. You're doing this for who now? For a guy that's in heaven? But they, they, they say this because of what we're told in 2 Corinthians 4.4, that their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. So that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They don't know him. They've not seen him. And yet, because of what we've seen here in Acts chapter 9 today, we know that the glory of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the God of this world. His glory is greater it is great enough, it is powerful enough to overcome any obstacle. A lifetime of sinning 
of hating the things of God, of being under the influence of the evil one, all of that can be disrupted in a moment when the glory of Jesus Christ breaks through. So as we close today, let me exhort you. Be confident in what the glory of Christ can do. Be confident in its power to transform. Because listen, we all know someone who needs an encounter with Jesus. Right? We all have that person in our life, that unbelieving parent, that wayward child, that, that neighbor, that coworker, that friend. You and I, we all have someone in our lives who seems like they're worlds away from being able to even entertain a conversation about the gospel without blowing up. And maybe you've become discouraged about that. Maybe that has begun to wear on you so that your prayers for that person maybe have begun to languish. Maybe you've secretly given up hope that that person will never be changed. You wouldn't say that out loud because theologically you know that's not true, but you've secretly wondered it. In your heart of hearts, you've thought it. And if so, you need to be reminded today. I need to be reminded today. We all need to see from Acts 9 just how disruptive the glory of Jesus really is. He really can bring reversal to the most hard-hearted sinner in your life. So don't stop praying. Don't stop hoping. Don't stop sharing Jesus with that person. Because after all, Jesus transformed you, did he not? He met you while you were dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked. And he completely disrupted your life. He knocked you off course. That deadly course that you were on. He knocked you off of it and he arrested your heart with the glory of who he is. So I encourage you, be amazed at the transformation that Jesus has worked in your life. And let that, trans let that amazement at that transformation... Let it give you confidence that he can do the same for anyone else. One way that we stay amazed by Jesus is by coming to the communion table. That's why we do this every week. As we take the bread and the cup by faith, we are placing our hearts and our lives underneath the weight of his glory. In the cup, or in the bread, we see his, the glory of his body being broken. And in the cup, we see the glory of his blood being poured out for sinners. Which means that if you have not encountered the glory of the risen Christ for yourself, if you're not walking with him by faith, if you've not had your heart transformed by him, we ask you to not come to the table, but instead we urge you and plead with you, believe in the Jesus that we've been talking about here today. Believe in the Jesus that we've been singing about, that we've been reading about we've been praying to believe in that Jesus turn away from your sin turn away from all the lesser glories of this world and turn to the true unrivaled glory that is in Jesus Christ and be saved if you have done that decisively I want to invite you to come you can come down this aisle here on this side of the room walk across the front the elements are here you take those and, and you, you can bring them back to your seat to receive them before you come let me pray for us Lord, we, uh, we know that you are glorious beyond all compare. And we need 
more than anything else, whether we realize it or not, every single one of us needs an encounter with your glory today. We need an encounter with your glory in your word. We need an encounter with your glory at the table. We need an encounter with your glory in the midst of your people as we're gathered in your name here. For those of us who don't know you, I pray that your glory would arrest them and change them and transform them completely so that the old passes away and the new has come. For those of us who do know you, I pray that your glory would be seen by us more clearly. So often, the cares of this life distort our vision of who you are, and we belittle you. You become a small thing to us. But remind us today just how vast and expansive and disruptive your glory really is. Stop us dead in our tracks today as you reveal yourself to us. As we come, let us take these elements, this bread and this cup. Let us take it in a manner that is worthy of your gospel, Jesus. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.